everybody gets a thrill from being a do-gooder, right? I certainly do. I certainly do. Yeah. So you get to do some tangible good because they need people to drive them to English class or to help them get involved and get registered for high school. But also you get your eyes opened to the challenges they face on a day-to-day, minute-by-minute level, which means you can't ever view you know, refugees as this big blob of faceless humanity you think about it like it's amina who is 17 and has no idea what's going on and just knows she has to go to this building five days a week when nobody talks to her she might be the only black person because it's salem oregon right like the only one wearing a headscarf who know? you know how would that feel to her Welcome to Depolarize Podcast. I am so pumped for you guys to hear this conversation. I found it incredible. I think Danielle's incredible. I think the work she's doing is incredible, but I also really love her honesty coming from a place of what she might call sort of naive missionary evangelicalism to really allowing the people she works with to shape her and change her. But I don't want to ruin that. You'll you'll hear it. Now, her context is a missionary context, so there will be plenty of religious talk. If you're not religious, you could skip this episode, but I don't think you should because, number one, you're going to get a detailed look at a little corner of the Christian world. And just because you might not be in the Christian world does not mean that your world does not have parallels to this. Also, it's just super interesting. And Danielle has really great experience with refugee communities. Um, couple notes. Number one, at one point she mentions white supremacy and we don't really explain it. So I'm going to explain it now so that when that comes up, you're not caught off guard. By white supremacy, I think she just means any system that ends up privileging white people over other races. Not necessarily sort of like a Nazi-esque whites are the best race genetically, but just anything that keeps up whites being at the top of power. Second of all, I want to say that this doesn't come through, but her writing is beautiful. Of course, we're having a podcast interview. You can't tell, but go read her stuff. There are a bunch of her articles in the show notes, as well as a link to her book. So thank you guys for listening. And next week... Science Mike. Okay, I am here with D.L. Mayfield. I may refer to her as Danielle because that's her name, and I've known her for a few years. Thanks for being here, Danielle. Thanks, Dan. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself in case people have no idea who you are? Yeah, so my name's Danielle, or D.L., and I write occasionally for various publications. I just came out with a book called Assimilate or Go Home, Notes yep. from a Failed Missionary on Rediscovering Faith. <laughs> Thank you for giving us the whole title. Yeah, <laughs> it's a long one. And um, yeah, I spent the last decade of my life living and working within refugee communities in the United States. Great. So you're not like a policy expert, but you spent a lot of time living among refugees. Yeah, I'm like an expert on sitting on their couches in their apartments here in the U.S. Yeah, yeah you're like a helping with dinner expert with refugees. Well, they cook for me usually, but yeah. Oh, that's kind. So I try to find experts on this show of one part <laughs> or another, but at the beginning of your book, you start with this sentence, 
This is the story of how I failed miserably and what a good thing that turned out to be. Can we still trust you? And what do you mean when you say that? Yeah, I mean, I set out wanting to convert my Uh, Muslim friends and I am an utter failure in that regard. But it's a good thing. I no longer want to like make people into white Western Christians just like myself. So that was a good failure. Yeah, it's been good for me personally. That sounds pretty good to me, honestly. So... There is something immediately depolarizing about you. You're a self-identified Christian, conservative, evangelical, and yet you live among refugees. Mm -hmm. You seem to me to be 100% in opposition to this dominant view on the right and in the Trump campaign that we need to restrict refugees for the sake of national security. Mm -hmm. What has that tension been like for you of being an anomaly this election cycle when news is at the front of everybody's mind? Yeah, I think, I don't know. I mean, in some ways... I don't feel like a depolarized person. I feel like living where I lived has almost radicalized me in a way. So I'll try and tone that down. Um, No, it's okay. But just having the neighbors and friendships I've had, you know, refugees are not an abstract thing to be afraid of. They're just the people I live with and Mm. interact with. Um, So for me, it's been a little hard hearing rhetoric around refugees or Muslims, it just feels really, really personal. And so it's hard to take a step back and be logical because these are people I know and they've enriched my life. And more than that, like I know the trauma that they come from and I know the traumas that are happening around the world. And it's hard to just listen to people sit back and make judgments or let Syria be bombed to hell and not care about that. I, I can't not care so it's hard to, especially as a Christian, it's hard to hear other Christians use that rhetoric when, you know, I'm trying to be obedient to Jesus and he keeps telling me to let more people into my life, um, yeah. regardless of my personal safety or um, even comfort levels. So that's been hard. Okay. So when I'm saying you're a depolarizing figure in general, I mean, mm-hmm. in like the grand scheme of the American moment, mm-hmm. but you don't have, it sounds like a ton of interaction with like the left you're mostly interacting with other Christians and you just feel like a radical. Yeah. Which makes sense because you are Mm -hmm. a radical on your half, especially (laughs) among conservative Christians. (laughs) Right. So what has that experience been like, butting up against that? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's been difficult in a way. So there's a few different spheres going on in my life. You know, one, there's, like I said, my actual neighbors. I've lived in apartment complexes. And neighborhoods where there's refugees and immigrants. Um, so there's that community, which they just think of me as an English teacher or a neighbor or a friend or something yeah. like that, right? Then I have my community that I come from, which is conservative evangelical Christians. And most of my writing is geared towards them. Um, and I do write a lot about what I've experienced working with refugees, trying to change opinions and helping people care, helping people see how hard life is for refugees in America, I think has been a really important theme for me because it's a struggle here and it just has given me so much more empathy. But also, you know, in another way, I've also gotten some pushback from like activists who um, have, you know, called me out for being kind of an outsider or white girl telling immigrant stories. Um, So I get pushed back in a couple different ways and it's hard. It's hard to balance all of those. And, but one thing I like to remember is, you know, your real life is what's important, not just your writing and who you interact with on Twitter. But if I'm doing the work in my real life, that's the most important. So one of the things that I want to try and do here is be honest about where we're coming from. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you're being pretty straightforward. You are 
essentially an activist on behalf of refugees because you know and love them so much. Yeah. Right. So where I'm coming from, too, for the listener's sake, is I understand borders. And in episode one, I gave an argument for national borders being important. But to be quite honest, I don't think that refugees pose a big threat to American national security. I think that the data shows that. And so I'm not going to be doing too good of a job at playing devil's advocate in arguing that they should not be allowed in. So consider this episode more of a storytelling one. And I'm going to make some arguments and you're going to make some arguments. And it's this one's not going to be a both sides kind of an episode. It, it probably just <laughs> won't be. But we will do our best to consider counter arguments and to make our arguments compelling and not bad. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you said that, Dan, because I actually wanted to ask you about this whole concept of depolarization. Depolarization, if okay. You, if you could kind of unpack that a little bit, because for me, I think, oh, you know, if some white guy is like, oh, we all just need to get along more. Okay, I'm all right, like, actually, good. I don't know if that's true, especially when huh. people's humanities, their lives are at stake. Sure. Um, you know, I'm like, I'm not sure we can come to a middle ground, but I don't think that's what you're saying, right? It might be time for Molotov cocktails thrown into, you know, city buildings or something. It could be. What? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not accusing you of inciting revolution. Okay, okay, good. I think, yeah, so the question is like, is it even worth trying to find middle ground when people's lives are at stake? Something to that effect. Right. Well, that's a great question. I think that I'm trying to take a 30,000 foot view. And something that I've noticed in my interactions with people over the last decade or so is that political speech and religious speech and a lot of these kind of charged social questions, increasingly people just know what they're supposed to believe based on their group. Mm-hmm. And I think social science bears this out. I mean, I think we we have what's called like plausibility structures based on the church we go to or the company we work for or the type of friends we hang out with and the things that other people around us believe are more plausible simply by being around people who believe Mm -hmm. them, which actually has nothing to do with whether or not they're correct. Because there are, of course, other groups of people who believe the opposite. And for the people in those groups, it's plausible that the opposite view is true. Mm -hmm. And so I think long term, if we're going to work in a democratic system where most change is incremental, that's just the fact, whether or not it should be, most of it is incremental, we have to have a common tongue. And in fact, the thing that has frustrated me the most this election cycle is that we can't even agree on the facts. We can't even agree on this reporting is good reporting. They double, triple sourced, here's the data from the Bureau of Immigration, here's the whatever, and one side will say, ah, biased media. Left, left leaning. Mm -hmm. There has to be something we can agree on. And so my hope is to practice for myself and to model for others charitable argument making and bridge building and olive branch extending. Because if we lose the center, then war is really the only option left. And so hopefully it's a peacemaking mission. Mm -hmm. And so, although I understand what you're saying, that there are certain instances where it does not matter, action must be taken, I don't think that those moments come very often. And I think if Donald Trump wins, there probably will be some moments like that. If he has Muslims, for instance, sign into a database, 
I think there might need to be some civil disobedience. Yeah, perhaps. I'm gonna I'm gonna sign up as Muslim. That's my plan. Yeah, For sure. sign up as Muslim. So maybe millions of Christians sign up as Muslims mm-hmm. and mess with the database. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a moment where I don't need to like stop and explain to my father-in-law, or whatever. <laughs> Just do it, right? Okay. Yeah. But at the same time, we're all consuming podcasts and conversations, and mm-hmm. we're thinking through issues. And so I think that while we're doing that, let's try and find at least a common language, even if we disagree at the end of the day. Okay, that's great. And That's I just want to say, you know, coming into this conversation, you know, the political discourse for me specifically around immigrants, Muslims, refugees, and people of color, I just, I carry that weight of their humanity and how it's been treated yeah. with me into this conversation. So great. Bring it. Okay. Bring it with you. <laughs> okay. So you say at the beginning of your book, is it clear yet that I've only read the beginning? Oh of my the book? gosh. <laughs> No, but I mean, we've talked about this much. So you say at the beginning that when you first started working with these refugee populations, Mm -hmm. you saw it as a light darkness thing and that you were the sun and they were the darkness. Yeah. Can you unpack that statement for us? Yeah, I think it's a pretty traditional view. If you think of yourself as a missionary, that you Mm. have the good news. You have the right answers. I went to Bible college. I had the right doctrine. And I was going to go share it with people who had never heard it before. Um, The refugees I ended up volunteering with, I mean, the full story is I was going to Bible college in Portland, Oregon, and started volunteering with refugees through Catholic Charities. I ended up being paired up with um, a family from Somalia, and they're Somali Bantu refugees. And yeah, they're actually a non-literate people at that time they'd been denied access to education they some of them had never used stairs or light switches i mean before they got resettled in portland so they were experiencing such massive culture shock Um, obviously they didn't speak english so i wanted to go and tell them all about jesus and then i quickly realized like oh my gosh first we have to help them survive like how to shop at a grocery store, how to not get swindled, how to, you know, navigate healthcare, how to not get cheated by your landlord. Like all those things were so pressing and it kind of just flipped my world upside down. Well, what is good news to them? What do they actually need right now? Yeah, you went in there going, oh, if I can get them to admit that Jesus of Nazareth is their savior, then that's it. We're good. We're good. We're good to go. You showed up and it was like, they need toothpaste. They need to yeah. speak English so that right. they can like read a bus map. Well, they need life to be easier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> That's what I was wow. thinking. Yeah. So what is the difference between a refugee and an immigrant? Because there is a lot of conversation. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I actually wonder if, if everyone is even correctly thinking of refugees when they say refugees. So what's that difference? Yeah. So a refugee is someone who has had to leave their country due to fear of death or violence or religious persecution. And One thing that's been helpful for me and that I like to tell other people is, you know, refugees are not immigrants. They did not come to America seeking to better their lives. They are not here for the American dream. They literally cannot ever go back to their country. Even if, I mean, most of the people I know would love to. They would love to go back to where they're from. And instead, most of them have to flee their countries. They languish in refugee camps for some people you know, over decades. And then finally, a very small percentage of them are picked to be resettled in America. And then they are just plunged into these environments where they're basically left to sink or swim. Like in America, they get about eight months of assistance. And so thinking about my friends, 
only giving eight months of assistance where, you know, they never even held a pencil before in their life. Like, how are they supposed to be self-sustaining in eight months? It was astonishing. Yeah. How do you basically go from the outback and living off of the land in an illiterate society to navigating Portland in eight months? Right. (laughs) Wow. How long does that process usually take? So for your friends, Mm -hmm. from when they were driven out of their village or city Mm -hmm. to when they stepped foot in Portland. I imagine it varies, but like give us some sense of the timeline and what that process is. Yeah, I think it it does vary. In the beginning, most of the refugees I worked with had been in refugee camps in Kenya for, like I said, up to a decade, sometimes longer. And friends from Bhutan, I've heard similar stories. It seems like now maybe things are accelerating a little bit. Like I have some friends now from Syria and Afghanistan, and it doesn't seem like it took decades to get them over here. Right. Um, so I think it does vary. But the process, once they are in the middle of the U.S. admissions system, mm-hmm. I've read that that's usually 18 to 24 months. Is okay. that what you've, is that what your friends have basically said? Or have you, <laughs> that's like the last thing you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, we, we do not talk about that. So actually, this is news to me. This okay. is good to know. Well, it's 18 to 24 and months. And most of the time, like, they are not aware of where they're at in the process. It's just, oh, interesting. I mean, from the people I've talked to, It's just they never know. And then there's some special things like right now, a lot of the refugees I know are from Afghanistan and most of them are here because the men in the family helped the United States. And so maybe like intelligence. Yes. And so now, obviously, they're loyal to the to America. And so things happened. And so maybe that was a little bit more expedited, too, because they were allies. Um, That's interesting. With the U.S. Yeah. That makes me think of Trump in the second debate saying Muslims need to speak up and giving that false claim about friends in San Bernardino seeing bombs all over the apartment before the couple committed that crime. Oh, my gosh. And then I looked it up and like (laughs) the FBI in the U.S. says like Muslim informants are like one of our single greatest assets Mm, in the war on terror. mm -hmm. It's like frustrating. Right. Anyway. So we had some Facebook questions on the discussion group, which is, of course, called Depolarized Podcast Discussion Group. And one of them is, can we talk a little bit about crime rates among refugees? So I did a little bit of research on this. And let's talk about America first. So what I found is that there are multiple studies, and basically they all attest to the same reality, that crime rates are lower among refugee populations than the general population. And in fact, some people have even argued that larger numbers of refugees coming to America has helped to decrease the overall crime rate in America. So that's how conclusive that evidence is. Yeah. What's your experience been in that kind of world? Yeah, I mean, that totally lines up with my experience. Actually, I just wrote something for the Willamette Week in Portland, which is an alternative weekly newspaper about my specific apartment complex, which basically has become gentrified because of all the refugee families who live there and have made it a safe and wonderful place to live. Now the rents are going up and they can't afford to live there anymore. Okay, so it's like a crappy apartment complex in a bad part of town. It was like the murder capital of Portland. Like a few years ago, the cops were getting called a minimum of two times a day to come to this place. I think like maybe it was a year and a half ago, they celebrated a year without a murder. (laughs) That kind of apartment complex. Oh my gosh. Okay, so who moves in? So they got new management. They had a ton of empty units. This guy... I wonder why. I know, right? Yeah. 
this guy went around the manager he had like a bulletproof vest and he went around and started kicking people out and then he thought well how can I get people to move in here and he just had this brilliant idea to go to these refugee resettlement agencies and be like you should resettle your families here because again I said they get eight months of assistance so that means eight months of rent paid yeah right? it's guaranteed eight months of rent yeah. yeah so he did that and it became so successful that he actually goes around Portland now like teaching managers like how to get refugee tenants to make your apartment complex better so you can charge more rent and eventually kick out the refugees. He does a he does a refugee settlement and gentrification seminar I mean, for landlords. He's trying to do good right, okay. and then and it's it gets complicated when yes. gentrification starts happening. Right. But all that to say the crime rates went down exponentially. Like I loved living in this place. We actually just moved out two weeks ago, but it was the most magical place. Just families from all over the world watching out for each other. It was extremely safe. It was an awesome place to live. So I want to ask you more about that, but if I don't insert this now, I'll forget really quick about Europe because Trump has been making claims like German cities are riddled with crime now that all the Syrian refugees have been let in because Germany let in like 1.1 million refugees in 2015. Yeah. Which is a big news story. I know. So I looked into that and actually I have a quote here. According, and I get, this is going to be a German word. It's very long. <laughs> According to the Bundeskriminalamt, which is like the Federal Office of Crime Statistics or whatever, okay. but it's one long word in German, also known as the Federal Criminal Police Office, crimes by immigrants rose 79% in 2015. That sounds bad. But the number of refugees in the country rose 440% mm -hmm. during that time. In other words, the typical German was more likely to engage in crime than the average migrant. Not only that, they found that the increase was in the first half of 2015. The rate leveled off during the second half of the year, the period with the greatest influx of refugees. Yeah. And I wonder if it's, I mean, in my experience, I've always worked with families. So women, yeah. lots of kids. It's, it's hard for me to hear the worries about crime when I'm like, they're families, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It just doesn't really square. <laughs> no, it yeah. doesn't. So to me, that seems like a very fear-based, you know, I'm not quite sure where that's coming Argument. from. There's a there's a lot of fear-based stuff going on in the Trump campaign right now. And I think that's clear. And, and I think it's so fascinating. Like, I would be interested in hearing this argument in Germany. But it's so crazy that we're having it in America where we let in hardly anybody. Like, we well, are I so isolated. And yet yeah. we're still so freaked out. Like, to me, I think that's what drives me batty. I'm like, okay, Germany had a 400% increase. Okay, they can have some convos over there, right? Hmm. Uh, we let in hardly anybody and we are freaking out about it. Like, well, so there's two points there. One is our level of fear should be proportionate to the amount of refugees we let in, as opposed to... Well, and if it should bad just go, things happen when we let them in. Right, sure. But there is another argument, which is if we're considering letting more in, Germany let a ton in, can we look at some data and get a picture of what we mm -hmm. could expect? And I think that's a good... I think that's perfectly great. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's ridiculous to want to see that data to anticipate what might happen here. I just think that it's irresponsible then to mischaracterize that data. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. Okay. So, in fact, there's one, one more quote here from the assistant director of the Migration Policy Institute in Brussels for like all of the EU. Quote, there's nothing to suggest that there is anything specific to refugee populations in general or to those seeking asylum in Europe in particular that predisposes them to crime. 
In fact, the opposite is more likely to be true because there is so much more riding on their ability to avoid encounters with police and jeopardize their future in the country. Mm. And that argument makes sense, right? It's like I had Chris Hokan talking about illegal immigrants and the joke was, how do you find an immigrant? Like you find cars driving the speed limit using their blinkers oh my because they don't want to be right. deported. So they're not going to break the law. Whereas if I were to break the law in high school or college, I got a pretty good safety net. I, it's not going to ruin the rest yeah, of my do. life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. Thanks, mom and dad. <laughs> but back to living in that apartment complex. So you yeah. moved into the former murder capital of Portland. Yep. With your two children and husband. Yep. Can we talk about personal safety? Have you ever been afraid for your safety or the safety of your kids? Um, There's been a few times. Usually when I move into a new neighborhood or a new apartment complex, we, we also spent three years in Minneapolis for a while. And yeah. uh, the first apartment complex we lived for 18 months, it was pretty wild in the beginning. Um, but actually, there, those weren't really refugee neighbors in that setting. It was... Mostly people from generational poverty, single single males coming out of addiction. So, yeah. you know, a whole different set of issues right there. But, you know, overall, I say working with refugees, like, I feel so much safer. We just moved into a house around the corner from our apartment complex. And I'm freaked out. Like, I'm in a You're house all by in myself. Your own house. Yeah. I mean, somebody came and, like, unplugged our security cameras. And I was like, yeah, I don't have, like, my neighbor friends, like, watching out for me. I don't know these people yet. Huh. So it's funny. Now I feel more afraid, like not being in that communal space. That is very funny and interesting. Yeah. So the refugees that you have befriended over the years, what countries have they been from? You've mentioned Somalia mm-hmm. and Syria and Afghanistan more recently. Yeah. Anywhere else? Bhutan and um, Myanmar. There's a few different yeah. people groups from Myanmar that are refugees. Um, some are Muslim and some are not. Uh, Aromo, Aromia, which is in Ethiopia. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's probably the majority. And most of them have been um, Muslim populations in my life. Mm -hmm. So you have a lot of, you've you've logged a lot of hours and days and and years living amongst Muslims who basically have no desire to become Christians. Right. Or really assimilate fully into American culture. Really? Which maybe is something that freaks people out a little bit. And we can talk about. Let's talk about that. So Maybe that's a fear that we might not deride quite so much. Mm-hmm. People are worried that if a bunch of people move into their city or their state and have no desire to become sort of card-carrying Americans, mm-hmm. is that dangerous for a society? Does that break down the social fabric? What has been your experience? I mean, you you don't strike me as someone who is particularly concerned with like living an American life, <laughs> but just just give us your experience on that. Okay. Well, that's a big question. And actually, Minneapolis is a really fascinating example of where this is coming to light. So the reason we moved to Minneapolis is because there's 100,000 Somalis that live in the state of Minnesota. So that's a huge number. And then you also have like Minnesota culture, right? So that's where my mom is from. Okay. So when we first moved there, it was fascinating to see these cultures kind of collide. So they built Somali malls, they built mosques, they built all these things. And then you have just the Minnesota life, like running right next to it. And there definitely was some tension, but there was also that Midwestern nice thing going on. So I think the tensions were kind of simmering under the surface. But even when we were there, like, they elected a Somali man to city council, which at that point was like the highest oh, wow. office a Somali person had had achieved in America, political. 
space. So they are advocating for themselves. I did hear some stories of like, all these Somalis took over this one school board and blah, blah, blah. But like, that was pretty few and far between. Yeah. And overall, I think people tried pretty hard to be okay with it. At the same time, like I said, the fears were simmering and, and that's maybe not so healthy. I didn't know this at the time, but I was teaching an English class inside this kind of a high-rise, low-income apartment complex. It's actually like one of the last few in America. So I thought that was fascinating. It was yeah. like 38 stories high. Um, and so in this one city block, there's about 8,000 people that live because there's a few of them right next to each other. So I taught English there to mostly Somali and Oromo students. And I just asked churches, if anybody wanted to come help out, this woman started helping me um, and she would come once a week and come volunteer in my class and help out. And it wasn't until after she'd been doing that for a year that she told me that she had been deathly afraid of Muslims and thought they were there to kill her. Right? Before so she, she started volunteering. Yeah, so she goes to the grocery store and sees Somali women everywhere, grocery shopping along with her. And she has this fear inside of her, like Muslims are here to kill Christians, right? <laughs> And she, I don't think she was okay with that feeling, which is why she stepped out of her comfort zone, came and right, volunteered with chose, me. Yeah. She ended up like loving these students. Like she would bring tea every time she came. She brought all her own tea supplies because there was a cockroach situation in the school <laughs> kitchen. So she decided to bring all her own supplies. She made them tea. She served them. I moved back to Portland. She's still volunteering there. It's been over wow. a year later. And so to me, I'm like, I would never have known that was inside of her. And I'm kind of glad I didn't because I'm not sure I would have known what to do with that. But I'm just so glad that she showed up and came back week after week and was changed by meeting these people. And I think changed by hearing their stories. I mean, the stories they have to tell about their life. It's just, yeah, they've gone through so, so much. And once you start to hear those and get a sense for, wow, this is everybody, like everybody's experiences. Oh, every Friday you get phone calls from family members who are starving to death and asking you to give every last cent you have to them to keep them all. I mean, you know, you start to get overwhelmed by their life and their experiences. And I think that gives you empathy. Let's hear some more of those stories. Just tell us a few. And I know that you're a little reticent to tell refugees stories on their behalf. Right. But Are there any you feel confident that are public enough that you can give us something? Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's a story in my book that I could share. I mean, for me, when I first started working with refugees, I was really young, really naive, just really had a pretty optimistic view of the world. And so little things would just happen and and catch me off guard. So little stories, it always really gets to me when people, like when we talk about pets or something. So I had a cat and these Somali Bantu girls would come over and play with the cat and they would tell me how they would have a cat in the refugee camp, but then they ran out of food. And so they were having a hard time feeding themselves. So they had to stop feeding the cat until the cat starved to death. And that's their experience with having a cat. And, And they just told it to me so nonchalantly. And that's just one story out of thousands and thousands so any little mundane thing could bring up trauma is what i realized like could bring back some sort of traumatic evidence like you know i teach english mostly with women who have never been in a classroom before and so the one consistent in a refugee's life like no matter where they're from no matter their story is is trauma right and trauma affects your brain so most of the students i work with are never ever ever going to be able to learn english or become literate in english because trauma has affected their brain to the point they cannot retain new information at the rate they need to. This is like sort of in the realm of PTSD or is yes, it something different? Yes. 
Um, I mean, I don't know all the science behind it. I'm just talking on an anecdotal level. In every class I've ever taught, there's been maybe one or two students who get it and who progress, and then the vast majority of them do not. And that's just the reality of working within extremely traumatized groups, who also they have a lot going on in their lives, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So one thing we do is we always talk about family, because family is really important to people, especially Muslims. So I'll say, like, how many kids do you have? What are their names? And I remember one class, this woman was talking, and all of a sudden, she changed her story. She said something like, well, I have eight kids, but in Africa, I had 10, and two died. Then all of a sudden, every single woman starts going around the table and telling me about their multiple children that have died. And I realize every single person in this class has had babies who have died. Like every single one of them. And I was like, I'm supposed to keep teaching this class, but I can't. Like, we just need to stop and acknowledge this. And they weren't like, oh my gosh, let's have a grief therapy session. That was like... It was normal to that them. That was just what they were saying. Like, that's wow. what happened. That's yeah. the reality. And I mean, most of the times, from what I gather, their their kids would get sick. And within six hours of vomiting and diarrhea, they'd be dead from dehydration. Just like, that's how tenuous life is for them. And that's the reality. You know, and I would go home to my two children... <laughs> safe and sound, you know, and just be like, how can this reality be? How can our world be so unequal? And that's probably a recurrent theme in like my life, is working with refugees has led me to just kind of despair at the utter inequality of our world. And I'm not okay with that. So one reason that a conservative who is afraid of the consequences of letting in refugees, one reason that they might be willing to accept that risk if they think it's real is out of compassion for the horrendous lives that most of these people have lived to get them to the point of needing to be a refugee. Mm -hmm. And you spent, you've spent years hearing those stories and you probably cannot imagine going back to any position of sort of like keep them out. Wow. So yeah, it is really hard for me to go backwards because of these stories I carry with me. And again, it's such a position of privilege in my mind to say, I want to keep my family safe. And you know, the question I ask is why? Like, why are my children safe and sound and alive? Like I actually had two traumatic pregnancies and I should be dead. Like if I lived in Somalia, I would be dead like two times over, right? But I live here in America and I had health care and I survived. And there's a part of me, I guess, that now is like, well, I was given that great blessing. Like, it is my job to now try and share that. Um, but I do have a friend. Um, her name's Laura and she lives in Oklahoma and she comes from maybe a more conservative community even than I am from. And she recently went to Lebanon, um, I believe with World Vision, um, to meet with Syrian refugees and listen to their stories. And she shared something on Facebook that I thought was really interesting. And she basically said, you know, if you are afraid of Syrian refugees, I'm not going to shame you for feeling afraid. She said, but I was just in Lebanon with Syrian mothers and they are afraid. They are so terrified of ISIS. And if you in Oklahoma who are afraid of ISIS, if you can use that fear to empathize with the fear of the Mm. Syrian mothers in Lebanon, like that would be a great starting point. And I thought, oh, that is great. That's beautiful. I'm unable to say that, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm glad she can, right? I'm really glad that she said that. You're like mama bear with the cubs. No, I'm like, we have a moral imperative 
yeah. to take care of those regardless who are suffering. Of how com- yeah, regardless of what we want our country to be like. And I think safety eyes. is an idol. And there's no way to keep ourselves safe. There's just no way. We're all going to die. <laughs> We're all going to have terrible things happen to us in this life. Like, yeah. there's no way to keep ourselves safe. Like, it's totally a clutching at straws. Interesting. Yeah. Sorry, I'm a little... No, I think I think there's a way to talk about that that also acknowledges the need for like good informed policy. I mean, there is it is true that every one of us will die unless like the singularity people are right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we don't need to die needlessly mm-hmm. and we don't need to hasten death with poor decisions and we don't need to be foolish. So that's probably a good way of thinking about it. Like, I am going to die. My kids are going to die someday. These people are going to die if they don't leave the refugee camp that they're in or if they don't Mm -hmm. leave their country. If that's what awaits us all, we can start thinking about what do we do in the meantime, you know? Which is not to say, erase all the borders, like, go to a global currency. Like, I'm not saying anything like that. I'm just saying, well, what's reasonable? Well, we do need to erase some of that emotional distance, I think. Like, for some reason, like, what's going on in Syria is not affecting the average American on a day-to-day basis. Like, they are not thinking about the fact that children are dying there, right? Yeah. Like, and I know we can't go through the world, like, through our life thinking about that every second. But we should be thinking about it at least every once in a while. Yeah, I mean, there is a problem with information overload. I mean, one thing you have to be compassionate, I think you have to be compassionate about towards people who are not activists in or are not as passionate about whatever particular issue you or I are passionate about is that human brains are not meant for 24-hour global news cycles. Right. I mean, we're just not. Like, we have been around for, and this will be controversial for a few of you, but... Humans have been around for 250,000 years, and we've only had the 24-hour news cycle. Not 5,000. Not 5,000. Sorry, Danielle. (laughs) Uh, Maybe we'll do an episode on that. But in 250,000 years, we've only had a 24-hour news cycle on cable news for about 15 years. And we've only had sort of New York Times on our device fingertips for like six or seven years. And we're actually just not that well-suited to absorb all of that information and to Mm -hmm. absorb all of the injustice going on all around the world. And I think that's a really big challenge of our generation and the next generation is finding a way to limit the information that we force ourselves or ask ourselves to consume, while at the same time being discerning about what information we do consume and not ignoring problems in the world. But you can understand how it can feel overwhelming to someone, especially someone who has maybe lost a job or is struggling financially or their kids are doing drugs and not doing well in high school. And they feel like, what are you guys talking about in about Syria? Like my life's falling apart. Mm -hmm. And on one hand, you can't blame someone who's going through problems. I got a Facebook message today from a young guy who's like sharing these right-wing articles with me. And he's not being malicious. He's just like, what do you think about this? And I'm like, well, you know, it's not double-sourced journalism. And I think it's a little bit conspiratorial. And he's like, yeah, man, I don't know. I just, I'm paycheck to paycheck with my wife and a mortgage. I'm worried I'm going to lose my house. And I don't know what to do with my vote. And I was like, ooh, Mm -hmm. you know, like, okay, I got to have grace for that guy, right? I cannot shame him 
But some of us have more time and more resources and we are not living paycheck to paycheck. And so that's where I think the ethical or moral onus really does start to take place. I don't know. I wouldn't be so quick to discredit. That's an interesting example you use. I mean, I think we will agree. Like I said earlier, like the real thing is your life, right? Not if you watch something about Syria and feel despondent. <laughs> like, sure. That's not the end goal to caring about Syria. Um, and as a Christian, maybe when I'm talking about the moral imperative, what I'm even saying is I want to pray for Syria. I want Syria to be on my heart. I want the suffering of the world to be close to me because what the Bible tells me is that's where Jesus is. He's with the suffering. And so no matter where I am in life, I can walk confidently in the direction of people who are suffering. And so for me, that's been refugees. But even, you know, the man you're describing right now, like that message is for everybody. Like there's so many people living paycheck to paycheck. Mm. He it's can for be, him as well. Yeah. yeah, he can be invested in his own community. Like, you know, people who have been traumatized, like refugees, people in generational poverty, these these neighbors I've had, like they are actually awesome at taking care of each other. I've never met people so generous as people who are poor. And that's just what they do. Like <laughs> they have been doing intentional community long before any of us and they get evicted yeah. for doing it, for housing their family members and friends, um, yeah. for reaching out to each other. So again, you know, refugees is my passion point, but no matter where we are in our real life, I think we need to be walking towards suffering wherever that is. But what we want to do is run away from it and pretend like it isn't there and maybe engage in political activity and despair even as a way to get out of engaging whatever the suffering is in our life. I don't know. I'm just spitballing. No, that's we, good. We can I cut this. <laughs> one thing I've learned is that if I talk for too long, I'm bound to say something not nearly as profound as whatever my guest is going to say next. So I got to learn that one. But no, I think that now you're getting at sort of like the heart of the gospel narratives, mm -hmm. as I understand them, which is that for in Jesus's teaching, the only fulfilled and truly human life is one in which the personal desires are subsumed to the neighbor and the other. And then paradoxically, once you do that, actually your desires you didn't even know you had will surface and will be fulfilled. And there it's better than if you just store up your chestnuts for yourself, store up your money, store up your safety, store up your whatever. And personally, I'm really on board with that, with what you're saying. And I agree. And that is what I try and live my life by in the realm of this podcast. I think it's, I'm, I'm trying to not push that as much because I don't think I can hold people who are not Christians to that standard, mm -hmm. first of all. Mm -hmm. And second of all, that's a tough standard. I think it's the best one. Don't get me wrong. But I I want to, I guess I'm just worried about alienating people by not being willing to take them at their word from where they're coming from. Because that's also something that Jesus did, right? So there are these principles, these ethical principles in his teaching. Mm -hmm. But then there's what he did, which was he met people where they were at, mm -hmm. for sure. So I think we have to find a way to balance that, to listen, and then to lead by example kind of a thing. One thing I wanted to talk about was the fact that I think Jesus tried really hard to be a non-polarizing force in the world, right? So as much as I don't mm. like it, he ate dinner with rich people too. Yeah. Like he totally did. Like he did. super uptight, self-righteous Pharisees. Like he was eating dinner at their house. And I think he was like being cool to them, right? 
However, the things he said and the things he did created a ton of polarization. So I think that's an interesting point just to keep in mind, like, and it's a good reminder for myself. Like, I have to have unity in my heart as the ultimate goal or everything's ruined, right? At the same time, I think it's okay to put forth these words or even live my life in a way that ends up creating a lot of tension and being okay with that. Like sometimes the right beliefs do create polarization, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I think personally, I want to follow through with my beliefs in a way that is consistent with them and that invites other people into that life while not hopefully simultaneously not denigrating or excluding people who have not chosen to live in that way. So how can one be inviting through love without casting aspersion or, or, or sort of giving a judgmental vibe? Well, I actually think there's definitely a place for judgment. Again, I'm a Christian looking to Jesus. He did. I mean, he called people broods of vipers and whitewashed tombs and, you know, like he called out people all the time and said, you're being hypocrites. I'm not Jesus, so I probably should not put myself in that position, right? Yeah. But I will say, you know, the scriptures as a whole, there's a few different roles. There's, you know, priests or maybe we say pastors today. And then there's people in the prophetic tradition who are there just to irritate people. Like that's their job is to say really intense, harsh things. And And everybody hates them. And I'm never going to call myself that. (laughs) And yet at the same time, I find myself being like, oh, shit, nobody else is going to say that. Okay, I'm going to say this thing. And then I get really annoyed. And I just like, why is everybody so mad at me? And so I do find a little comfort knowing people in the Bible had pity parties for themselves, too, when they said things they felt like they had to say. So I'm just saying there's a couple different traditions. This is the one I'm coming from. I think there's others that are called to be more of the peacemaker. And then there's others like Trump. We don't have to talk about him. But that's why it is a little hard for me to engage with Trump. Because, again, I feel all the people that he has oppressed with his words, that he would with his term. And I can't extend a benefit of the doubt to somebody because it almost feels... Like I would then be abandoning my neighbors, right? If I said, oh, I see your point. Do you feel that way about Trump himself only? Or do you feel that way about someone who is planning to vote for Trump because let's say they want his Supreme Court nominees? Yeah, I like think. Like someone who's someone who is divided within themselves, but thinks that they need to vote for okay, Trump. Okay, you want to get real? Let's get real. Okay, let's get real. I think it extends to people who are voting for Trump because I think a vote for Trump is a vote to maintain white supremacy. Is it a conscious vote to maintain white supremacy on the part of the voter? Yes and no. Conscious? I think so. Knowing? Yes. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. I am obsessed with inequality. And one of the things that I love about being a Christian is that the thing Jesus talked the most about was the kingdom of God, about bringing God's dream for the world to happen here in the now. Like, it's not just supposed to be a great life in heaven. Yeah. Like, God wants life to be great for everybody here. Like, he wants justice, right? He wants an equitable kingdom. The thing is, an equitable kingdom is very bad news if you're at the top. It's great news for you if you're at the bottom. Yeah. (laughs) And it's just like, whatever, for people in the middle. But for people at the top, it is very bad news. And the vibe I'm getting from people voting for Trump is they're afraid of the bad news. Maybe that is me being uncharitable. 
And again, maybe this is all unconscious, but this is just what I'm seeing from hanging out with people who are at the very bottom of society in America. And I'm an, I'm an observer. I am not at the bottom. I come from a pretty privileged place, and maybe I'm just dealing with my own stuff here. Maybe but you're projecting on yourself. Have, <laughs> I mean, my friends have a lot to gain from life being a little bit more just for them. Yeah, that's interesting. And maybe you are a polarizing figure, and you were right at the very beginning here. <laughs> I don't think you can say that the average Trump voter, especially one who is internally conflicted about it, wants white supremacy to continue. I think there are a lot of reasons that people think they should vote Trump. I know many people who just cannot abandon the GOP platform that is important Mm -hmm. to them. Now, I think you could make a case that Trump is not continuing that platform. And that'd be a different argument. But if they believe that he is, they cannot vote for a Clinton over having more power in the GOP, even if the president sucks. Well, I'm having a hard time thinking of something Trump has said that isn't about making life better for white males specifically. Well, he talks about NAFTA and trade deals, and that has nothing to do with whites specifically. That's him himself, a white male. Yeah, but NAFTA is like... Trying to tax companies who go overseas and keep jobs in America. I mean, that's not about white supremacy. I think that the law and order stop and frisk stuff is incredibly problematic. Mm -hmm. I think that the Mexico is sending rapists is problematic. I Mm -hmm. think the focus on immigrants who commit crimes like Mm -hmm. at the Republican convention is really problematic. Mm -hmm. But I think the argument of hey, Bush's and Clinton's is a political dynasty. It hasn't worked. Whether or not you like that argument, it has nothing to do with white supremacy. The trade argument has nothing to do with white supremacy. Um, But make America great again is, to me, such a thinly veiled... You know, I think that the reason... that. Yeah, I think the reason make America great again works for so many people is that it is very vague. And I think people can fill in great. But it wasn't ever great for a lot of people. That's true. That's true. (laughs) And a lot of that is a lot of that is nostalgia for something that never was there in yeah, the first place. Nostalgia is very dangerous. But it's not all racism, is what I'm saying. Some of it is, and a lot of that is latent. And that if people really understood they are being racist, my hope is that they would change mm-hmm. and not be racist anymore. I think it's really hard to criticize someone who grew up in a different soup than you grew up in, in terms of those kind of baked in cultural attitudes. So I would rather focus on Trump himself and his arguments Mm -hmm. and knock them down because they're bad arguments. Right. Then criticize the voter. Yeah, we'll do a story away. (laughs) I think it's good. (laughs) No, it's fine. Yeah. But this is, look, this has been more awkward than the first half of the interview because this is the messy work. Yeah. These are. Oh, the I don't hard... think it's awkward. I think it's fun. Well, but, I, I, yeah. I don't think it's awkward either, but it may have been awkward for some listeners. But this is the hard work. <laughs> this is what we have to try and learn to do. Right. And you're on the spot even challenging me on my thoughts on this. And I'm, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking sorry. about them. No, it's great. No, I'm I love not it. very good at depolarizing. No, it's, it's so awesome. True. It's great. And I probably, I'm going to listen back to this and I'm going to say, oh, I, maybe I didn't even, maybe I didn't even say that right. And there's a better thing here. But this is good. This is the messy work. This is the hard work. And we're going to let this episode stand because... Uh Uh-oh. No, it's good. I mean, we'll still edit it lightly. But this is good. It's hard. This is hard stuff. These are conversations that are hard to have and that we have to have, I think. Mm -hmm. 
you are a self-identified evangelical, mm-hmm. as we mentioned earlier. Personally, I'm no longer in that camp. I I try. I wanted to sign one of those evangelicals against Trump online things, mm-hmm. but I was like, I can't really do it. I'm not like by any definition, I'm not an evangelical anymore, which is fine. But you have expressed some hope, and you were expressing hope about the evangelical movement before the Trump tapes leaked mm-hmm. with the Access Hollywood stuff. And I remember asking you, why are you hopeful? But since the tapes leaked, there has been quite an exodus from Trump, and a a number of leaders have recanted their support for him. A lot are still with him, and they're mostly older white male evangelical leaders, Mm -hmm. and they're mostly white evangelical voters who are sticking with Trump even after he bragged about committing sexual assault. What makes you hopeful for the future of the evangelical movement as it relates to social justice and the stuff that you care about? Yeah, because there's a lot of other people to listen to. So I would say from the beginning, most people of color who are evangelicals were against Trump from the beginning. A lot of women, a lot of women of color. And those are the people I pay attention to. (laughs) Like if you just hopped off the Trump train, I don't really have a lot to say. I can't respect that that much, to be perfectly honest. I mean, good for you, but there's people that were doing that from day one. And so I just have a lot of hope thinking about how diverse um, evangelicalism is. Just there's people from so many different backgrounds and they're they're just doing amazing work. Um, most of them are doing amazing work at a grassroots level and yeah. then also are speaking, um, you know, into social media platforms. And I feel extremely hopeful about that. Do you want me to give some names? I don't know. Yeah, give us a few names. If people are interested in that, who should they be following? Who should they be well, liking on Facebook? Just just, just name a few. Well, I really love Leroy Barber. He just came out with a book called Embrace. And he's actually one of the pastors at my church at Imago. And Lisa Sharon Harper is another voice that I just love listening to her. I mean, I love listening to people who they should have walked away from evangelicalism a long time ago. Yeah. And they did not. And they're sticking around and they're helping us. Um, They're helping us see our blind spots. They're helping us see what it means when we start actually thinking about how could Jesus be good news for people and not just a set of correct doctrine to like smash over other people's heads. So I guess those are the two people I would recommend the most. Nice. And are they just Google them? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) They're on Twitter and they're awesome. They're on Twitter and they're awesome. Someone once told me, Christians can be friends with Muslims, but they can't have fellowship with them. Fellowship only exists within the Christian family. What is your response to that statement? What? No. (laughs) (laughs) That's it? Well, I have two answers. Well, define fellowship. What what do you mean by fellowship? I don't know. Are you talking like the Christianese fellowship or what? I didn't clarify. Okay, so here's two answers. One is just... I have had so many meals and had so many experiences with my Muslim and um, Hindu and Buddhist, you know, refugee friends and neighbors. And the hospitality I received is just, it's been overwhelming. I don't know why, but they really are just like my community and my people, even though there's language barriers, there's cultural barriers. At the same time, I recognize the need for other friends too. So (laughs) I love social media for that, actually. Like that's where people speak English and that's where I can make my jokes about Brooklyn Nine-Nine or something, you know? So that's kind of how I combat that. Um, But as far as like the Christian definition of fellowship, you know, it wasn't 
until I was friends with Muslims that I actually had to start really practicing my faith. Um, and I had to wow. start really believing if God was good and if he cared about what was happening on the earth at all, just because of the trauma that they introduced to my life, you know, from hearing their stories, I really had to start to grapple with these bigger questions of who God was and what he was up to in our world. And, you know, I think one thing that's kind of important to me now, again, I don't, I have no desire to convert people to white Western Christianity, but something I think that is kind of beautiful is, I think we all believe lies about God, you know, yeah. Muslims and Christians both. Um, and I love coming together and praying Sorry, with people. Sorry, not my church. We have all of it. You've we got have, all figured it's out, right? all figured out. In yeah. your doctrinal statement of belief. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. valid. Right. Exactly. So, but I do think we all believe lies. And I actually really believe in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the power of scripture. And I think if I get together with people, we read scripture, we ask God to speak to us. Um, he will reveal things to us both. And I've um, you know, done that with Muslims. I've done that with other Christians. And So we've talked a lot about impulses and arguments from the right about refugees. And we've mostly found the arguments to be lacking. And we've found some of the impulses to be understandable. But we just think ultimately... We need to be welcoming. That's your stance and that's my stance as well. Well, and we didn't even mention, like, there hasn't ever been a terrorist attack committed by a refugee in America. Yeah. So at this point, the fear is unfounded. (laughs) Yeah. But what are some approaches or arguments from the progressive side that are bad or that are snobbish or that actually don't take into account the full breadth of the reality? Okay, yeah, this is harder for me to say out loud. Do it. Okay. Have because courage. I I love my refugee friends so much. It's hard for me to sometimes hear that we should accept a lot more refugees into the US when I know how poorly treated they are when they arrive wow. here and how isolated they are, how few resources are available to them. They're basically, you know, unless they come from a really highly educated background, which many refugees do not, they're kind of consigned to a life of poverty in America, um, which is really, really difficult and has so many challenges. So it's a little hard for me to hear, you know, people love to say, we welcome refugees. And I'm like, really? Do we? Hmm. I do not think we do. Like they live, we all live pretty darn segregated lives in America. And that includes refugees. Like I said, I have lived in these communities for decades, and they are communities. They all live in the same, usually low-income apartment complexes, you know, on the edges of the city where there's little to no resources, and they live really isolated lives. So I guess that's my main critique. I mean, it's really easy to put up a sign that says we welcome refugees, but from my position on the ground, many refugees are, are living pretty isolated lives, and they could use, I mean, they could use a lot of resources, but really the number one need they have is for a long-term relationship with people in the U.S. So that leads into the last couple of questions I have from the Facebook discussion group. And one of them is, what are organizations in America that are doing good work that people can get involved with if they want to be a part of taking care of the current refugees? Yeah, so... You know, the refugee resettlement agencies are the number one place to go to. And that varies from city to city? Yeah, I think there might be like, oh gosh, I don't know, seven to nine of these agencies, maybe more. But usually in any given city, there's 
one to two to three. I think Minneapolis had more. But. Yeah, it's not like uh, homeless ministries or something right, like that. No, they're no. they're only legally allowed to be one to three in a major metropolitan right, area, right, right. and they're pretty regulated by the government. Yeah, and so my personal favorite would be World Relief. Um, That's one that does a lot of work here in Seattle. Yeah, and yeah. so they are an evangelical organization. Um, but the one I worked with for all my time in Portland was Catholic Charities. I really love the work that they do. There's Lutheran Family Services in love Portland. Love those Catholics. <laughs> I love them so much. Um, yeah, so those are kind of the three main government subsidized resettlement agencies okay. that I'm aware of and that I work with. But the point is, if you live in Topeka mm-hmm. and you Google Topeka Refugee Resettlement, yeah. Only one or two places will come up yeah. and they are officially sanctioned by the U.S. government yeah. and work. So th- you're not worried about a bad organization sort of ripping people off. It's pretty right. tightly regulated right. Right. as opposed to other charitable industries. Exactly, And that's why I would say definitely go through them. Um, yes. They will, gi- they will give a own. background check and make sure you're not there to prey on refugees because that happens yeah. a lot, sadly. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, and they're very adept at utilizing volunteers. What I did was I became a family mentor, which meant I had to sign up um, to three hours a week, commit to three hours a week for six months. And I I just love that. Like, you just got to spend time and you have to show up week after week after week and just be around for the chaos and be around to face whatever crisis is next. And, you know, I've been doing this work for forever. My younger sister lives in Salem, Oregon, which... I live in Portland, but Portland's rent has gotten out of control, right? So refugee resettlement agencies, they keep getting families to resettle, and yet there's no place they can afford to put them because it's not like the government's going to give them more money. So yeah, they've been reselling them in Salem, which is, um, what, an hour south. Why am I getting my directions confused? You're the one who lives in Oregon, (laughs) not me. Anyways, um, and so my sister lives in Salem, and she started working with a family from Somalia. I think it's a a single mother and maybe four kids. And she has just been texting me like day and night being like, oh my gosh, I'm trying to register the oldest daughter, Amina, for high school. They don't even have a cell phone. She doesn't speak English. Like she's in tears. We're at the high school. What am I supposed to do? And I'm like, yeah, this is their life. Like it is sink or swim. You have to figure it out. Into You're the deep on end. your own. Yeah, You get a little bit of money hardly anything you you know all this stuff or she'll text me the next day like they're going to english class but the mom had to like have the children go to a different room so she could do english and like all the kids start screaming hysterically right because their mom is leaving them um so like little things like that and i can just tell she's getting super overwhelmed and at the same time she's getting super invested is she kind of loving it too oh yeah Yeah. i mean it's it's that mixture right I mean, everybody gets a thrill from being a do-gooder, right? I certainly do. I certainly do. Yeah. So you get to do some tangible good because they need people to drive them to English class or to help them get involved and get registered for high school. Yeah. But also you get your eyes opened to the challenges they face on a day-to-day, minute-by-minute level, which means you can't ever view you know, refugees as this big blob of faceless humanity you think about it like it's amina who is 17 and has no idea what's going on and just knows she has to go to this building five days a week where nobody talks to her she might be the only black person because it's salem oregon right like the only one wearing a headscarf who know you know how would that feel to her has it become easier for you to empathize with the plight of a refugee over your 15 whatever years of working with them? Because for me, it's really hard to imagine what it would be like to be a headscarf wearing 17-year-old female from Africa 
or Syria, not speaking English. I, I mean, yeah. I, I just can't. I'm sitting here. I'm trying to imagine that. Right. I have no idea what that would be like. Yeah, it's it's awful. And I think it's taken me years and years and years. I actually write about this a lot in the book is I was so focused on me and what I was doing and I was helping. And I never really thought about the risks involved for them to do anything here in America because of all the prejudices they're facing, you know, the English language barriers that they have. Um, I remember I took these Somali Bantu girls to like this big thing that happened at the waterfront. It was like this love Portland event, which uh, I think Louis Palau does. And there was like veggie tales at the kids stage. And I like took these girls with me, but of course they're the only ones wearing hijabs, like the only brown Muslim girls at this whole thing. And I was like, Oh my gosh, they're going to love it. It's veggie tales. I'll get the popcorn. And then as we were leaving, they were like, everybody was staring at us. Every Mm. single person was staring at us. And they said, everywhere we go, people are staring. And I just thought, Oh my gosh, like that did not even enter my mind. Like they just feel like they're on display in a very negative way, like at all times. Unless they're kind of in like the safety of their own apartment and their own culture. And so for me, it it took a long time to realize that. Um, But then I think that helped kind of crystallize my mission a little bit more, which is like I want to introduce more people into their lives in a safe, respectable way that minimizes the risk that they experience all the time. Like, so for me, it became really important. Like, I go to their homes. I eat their food. Like, I stop trying to shove, you know, my own do-gooder. I mean, I I cook things for them all the time, and they just, they hate it. They hate my food. (laughs) And I used to be so offended. You know, I would, like, cook these elaborate Thanksgiving meals, and they would take one bite and, like, dump the whole plate in the trash. And I'm like, what? I have, like, eaten your goat liver with a smile on my face. (laughs) What are you doing? And then eventually I realized... You know, in their lives, they have so little control over things that have Mm. happened to them. Cooking the food of their culture and that they like is the one thing they have control of. And they are not going to give that up. They are are proud of their food and they love their food. Yeah. And they do not need to eat my dried out turkey and mashed potatoes. And I just just accepted that. And that is awesome. And I'm not going to cook that food for them. So I'm thinking about this and maybe one of the reasons that refugees and national security fear are so polarizing is that it's so many steps. Take an issue like welfare reform or something. It's a polarizing question. You know, you have the welfare queen stereotype from the Reagan years as sort of like someone on the right who's worried that poor people are sort of scamming the system. And then someone on the left going, no, but we need to have compassion for them. And what if this happened to you and they don't have the safety net? That's like one or two steps of argumentation between Mm -hmm. those two sides. But what you're talking about, as I think about it, is like five steps. Let's see if we can walk through them. So I'm going to start as, I'm not picking on the South, but let's just say, I am from Alabama. I am 19 years old. My entire enclave is white. And I am afraid of refugees coming over and being terrorists. Here's my starting point. How many steps is it? For me to get to where you are at or where your sister is at, I mean, first I have to go, oh, there aren't that many refugees coming. Or I have to learn the process of what it takes for a refugee to get here. And then I need to learn the difference between a refugee and an immigrant or someone on a student visa or someone on a work visa or someone with a green card. Then I need to think, well, what about their faith? Like, isn't Islam antithetical to Christian? So then I need to read about well, how most Muslims are peaceful. 
And then I might not believe that because I don't know any Muslims. Somehow I need to be convinced that I shouldn't be afraid of Islam in general. Then I need to be like sufficiently calmed about my own needs and my own material needs that I can think about my country being generous to others. Okay, then I might find out, oh, down the road in Montgomery, there's a refugee resettlement agency. Maybe I go and I, I like consider for a few years signing up, but none of my friends have ever done that. No one in my group is doing that. So now I'm 24 and I have a job at Starbucks. I move into Montgomery and now one of my coworkers is a former refugee, or maybe he's a son of an immigrant, whatever. And I go, oh, like, this guy's cool. Then I find out I hang out with his friends. They're Muslim. Okay, now I can handle Muslims. I finally go at 27 into the into the refugee resettlement agency. and I say, can I help with anything? And they put me to work. Then I'm at day one of your journey in Minneapolis or before that, where you're like, then you're coming in with all your ideas about how you're going to make life better for them and all the idols that were crushed. And then it's 10 years to where you are now from right. there. So it is a fucking complicated process to get someone from the average, say, Trump supporter to where you are, much more so than the average political question. Right. But I think the exact same issue is at the root of all of these, which okay. is cultural isolation. Interesting. Okay, so I write about my life, and I know I've made interesting choices in my life. And so sometimes people will ask me, well, am I supposed to you know, move into an apartment complex that's low income and hang out with refugees all day? Is that the only way to meet refugees? And mm. a part of me is like, well, what's the easier answer? Either I say yes, because that's what I've done, or you need to change how your life is segregated to the point that every sphere that you operate in is filled with people who are just like you. Like, that's just as overwhelming to me. Um, so I'm not sure, like, In your mind, it's easier, easier to just move into yes, an apartment complex. I'm a lazy person. And so, like, <laughs> the apartment complex I just moved out of, like, literally once a day, somebody is stopping by to talk to me, to give me bread. They cook me food. They come over to play with my kids. Like, it is so easy. But the bigger issue for, I think, all of us is, like, Think about where you live, where you go to school, where you go to church, where you shop, what books you read, who you listen to, what news station you are watching. Like, I'm willing to bet most people, it's the same demographic in all of those spheres. And that's what we need to change, right? That is what we need to change. And so if you feel like you're at a point where you can't change any of those things, which I would hope you would try and change one of them. Yeah. Hopefully church and school first. <laughs> um <laughs> Then start reading books, I guess, is what I would say. Or start listening if you to live stories. near a city, you can volunteer at one of the agencies. You mean you can go That's and true. that is a way to start that process. Yeah. You can, you don't, so it's it pretty is, low risk for you. To answer your friend's question, your multiple friend's question, no, you don't have to move into a low income refugee full apartment complex. But if you're lazy, you, you should. If you're lazy, you should. If you are not lazy and can juggle some plates, just Look into volunteering there mm -hmm. and start there and see where the wind takes you. The wind of the spirit. <laughs> In that, I meant the spirit when I right, said Okay, wind. good. Okay, so we've been talking about this book. Mm -hmm. We've been dancing around the book. <laughs> we've just been, it's over there and we're not really, where can people read it and get it? Anywhere they sell books, man. Tell us the name again. Okay, it's called Assimilate or Go Home. Assimilate 
or go home. It's a very provocative cover, and I sort of <laughs> hoped that Donald Trump would pick it up. You guys should Google it. And say, this is what's wrong with America. You would have sold so many books. Right. I mean, that is something he probably says. I love it. I hope when people Google Assimilate or Go Home, my book is the first thing that comes up and they buy it and they get a few chapters in and they say, what is going on? And then they keep reading. That's what I hope. You're saying you want him to say that at rallies as a phrase. Does he say that? Well, it's too bad his wording isn't exactly that because that would be great for you. And then he probably doesn't say notes from a failed missionary on rediscovery faith. He doesn't stand up and he say, who's going to build the wall? Mexico. Refugees, assimilate or go home. Notes from a failed missionary. (laughs) He probably doesn't do the whole thing. No. He doesn't do the whole thing. I thought about like tweeting it at him to link to my book and seeing if he would buy it. But then the Trump trolls would roll in and, oh, I can't do that. Yeah. Yeah, you could try trolling Trump. I don't want to. Okay. I've got enough drama in yeah. my life. Okay, so it's sold everywhere. Books are sold. Yeah. And I admitted to only reading part of it, but I love it so far. And I already know that your writing is amazing. I've loved it for years. Oh, thank you, Dan. So I didn't have to like start it right away to find out if it was good. I knew it would be good. Okay, thank you. Thank you guys for listening. I mean, right? As always, guys, find me on Twitter, D-A-N-K-O-C-H. Send follow-up questions to Danielle to depolarizepodcast at gmail.com or join the Depolarize Podcast Facebook discussion group. As I mentioned earlier, we have a bunch of Danielle's writings up on the show notes, which are at depolarizepodcast.com. And as I said earlier, next week is Science Mike, Mike McHarg, author of Finding God in the Waves. You also might know him from the Liturgists podcast or Ask Science Mike. And we are going to be talking about common descent. The election is finally over and we're going to take a break from politics and we're going to talk about whether or not humans and apes are related and what kind of polarization that brings into various religious and non-religious communities. Looking forward to that one, guys. And thank you so much for your support. See ya.